Wells, and I am a recovering alcoholic. Hi, everybody. It's real good for me to be here today. When I was called and asked if I would participate in this area, I told Joe with a lot of ego and enthusiasm, sure. And then I began to think a lot, a little bit, and sort of let my alcoholic thinking get things rolling in my head. And I said, oh, my God, what have I said? There's people up there that I've been listening to for a long time that taught me so much about this book, and I know they've got a lot of things that they haven't taught me yet, and here I am, have accepted something. So I thought about that, and I went, and I didn't go to my sponsor, but I, because I knew what he, he would say, because he had told me before. And that is, when you're asked to do something in AA, do it. But what I was going to do was call Joe back and say, hey, I would like to, I, 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 I'd be glad to get you somebody. But Joe didn't call down there and say, Doyle, get me somebody. So I had to look reality in the eye. And uh, with that, I, I have gotten a little more comfortable about being here. It was in 1977 I was first exposed to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Always in my studies and when I read things, I would take my pen and make little notes as I went along. I'm not real sure why, but... I can remember the first big book I had. I, I was at work, and I had this friend that was my old drinking buddy, and for some, some reason something happened to him. I hadn't seen him in six or eight months. And he came by one morning, and uh, I was an anesthesiologist, and he looked nice, and, and, and uh, I thought he was fixing to go somewhere because I hadn't seen him in quite a while. And he looked a lot better than he used to look. He and I used to settle world problems on Sunday morning down in the swamps in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, and uh, I'd miss my friend, but he showed up and he looked neat, and he had a little book in his hand. And uh, I said, oh, buddy, where are you heading? You all dressed up, looked like you're fixing to go preaching. And uh, he said, well, sort of. He says, I brought you something. And it, that book had a cover on it, and he gave it to me and went on his way. And I went into my office and opened it up, and it was, says, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thought to myself, do you suppose that dude thinks I'm an alcoholic? <laughs> See, I didn't know he'd been going to Alcoholics Anonymous for the past six or eight months. I thrummed through it and looked at it, and it didn't have any graphs, and it didn't have any pictures. I didn't think it much to it. Later on, I did pull that book out and start looking at it, and I can remember when I got to chapter 2, and it says, there is a solution. I put a question mark behind it. <laughs> I think that tells you where I was getting. This chapter, to me, is sort of an introduction of things to come in the big book. It, uh, I can give you about a two-minute or less than two-minute simplification of it, is it really tells me that I've got to identify my problem before I can find the solution. 
and then it gives me some direction toward the solution. And as we go through it, from time to time, we will see things that make the rest of the book more significant to me. One thing that I took a look at, and, and you know, I, I, I had to look at a lot of things, and I share some feelings that I look. It tells us in here, in the first part of this chapter, that there's a lot of us, and they refer to us as average Americans. I think we can, that, at that point in time, that's where this was. It was in America. I think you can put it average people now because, hey, what are we today? This is international. It's average uh, people. And it tells us that we come from all walks of life. And I think that's where we're talking about being average. First time I heard average, man, I said, you know, at one time I'd looked at average American and I wasn't average. There was something wrong. I was way down. The next time I'd look at that average American, that I'm kind of little, I ain't quite like all those others. I'm different. So I had trouble with being average. And I had trouble. But I think what he's telling us there that was mainly had to do with a lot of people, ordinary, every day from all walks of life. Also, it tells us that uh, they came from all sorts of occupations, uh, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. And they didn't spell out my occupation. I was a physician. He didn't say in that everything that uh, physicians. I'll share with you a little experience that I've had in regards to being average and with all walks of life. I've had the opportunity to work with, I guess, or sit with a lot of healthcare people in the past eight or nine years. And I've had the opportunity to sit with a lot of non-healthcare people. And some of them would be bankers, some would be backhoe operators, some would be electricians, some would be housewives, and some wouldn't have any occupation at all. And somewhere down the line, they would get to where they could share with each other. And then it wasn't too long ago that I was sitting in in a group of healthcare people, most of whom were physicians. There was a couple of nurses, dentists or two, and we started out that gathering by wanting to know if anybody had any problems, anybody wanted to discuss anything. And everybody was laid back. Everybody was happy. It looked like. Nobody had too much to share. And I learned something. Even though we're all physicians, which gives us a little common tie, like the different walks of life and different politicians and things have differences, I found out that those of us in the healthcare field have an awful lot of differences, even though we may have a little common tie. And to get things started in the discussion and get some feelings started, I asked an internist sitting next to me how he felt about a child psychiatrist sitting across from us and did he feel like that that guy was a, a real doctor? And he said, no. 
Then I asked that child psychiatrist how he felt about this fellow sitting on my left if he was uh, being a... a uh, how, how, how do you feel that he feels about that surgeon over here referring to him as a guest passer? And I could begin to see some changes going on. So I asked this family doctor over here, how do you feel about your patients because they've been to see a specialist that you referred them to referring to you as just a family doctor? I have never seen so much anger exerted in one group in all my life and they were so laid back and there was a, there was deep-seated feelings there and do you know what I found out a little later that there was a solution to all of that and I'll try to get into that as we go along so if we think we all just totally uh, real comfortable with each other we need to take a look I had to take a look at a lot of those those areas myself there's another thing that I want to share with you in regards to that group, that regardless of how much anger we had toward each other, that we all had a common peril, and nobody there was for a Fourth of July picnic, that we all were suffering from the disease of dependency to mood-altering substances, and most of it there could relate to alcohol. This chapter tells us and tells me that that commonality or that common peril can be a powerful cement to bind us, but that's not the thing that keeps us bound. And it goes on to describe the common peril or the problem, if you will. And the illness that we just heard talked about. And what does that illness do to us? The loss of control of the drinking. And it engulfs, engulfs the lives of the, not only the sufferer, but all with whom the sufferer comes in contact. I said and listened yesterday how far-reaching, from a family dynamic standpoint, this disease is. And that's what I think he's telling us here now. It brings misunderstanding, fierce resentments, financial insecurity, disgusted friends and employees, warped lives of blameless children, said wives and parents, and you can go on and on with the list. <laughs> Excuse me. What they're doing here to me is identifying this problem. And I can relate to what they're talking about. This book was written for me. And when I first started, I kind of spotted around in, these, um, in, in studying this book and there was something about it was sort of more dramatic in reading the stories first. And what I was trying to do was find somebody in there that had a problem 
like mine because everybody else's was a lot worse than mine. And I couldn't identify with a lot of that. So if I can't identify with those problems, I must not be one of them. Well, what I wasn't looking at was the solution that they all had to their problems. And if I didn't have their problem, how would I, how, how could I be interested in their solution? It's that denial mechanism. And this is all points out in this chapter as to an attitude. To help me get an attitude as to how to look at the other areas. You see, as we go further on in the study of the book, it's got the agnostics. It's got a chapter to the wives whose problems. And on and on. But there's something else this book points out to me, and that is for those of us who have found the solution to the dream problem, have got a little something more to offer than most people to the suffering alcoholic. And I use this in my work all the time. And when they start making certain denials like I made and stuff, I said, hey, wait just a minute. It's okay. I've been there. I know where you are. And it always kind of gets a little... See, that's something... I don't know whether I earned it or maybe a little bit of it I earned. But it was a gift that was given to me that I could sit there and talk to that individual and share to let him know that, hey, I do understand. And I can remember the experience when I was on the other side and somebody told me they understood and I thought he's blowing smoke because nobody understood as far as I was concerned. But I didn't turn it loose. I kind of hung on to it. It was done in such a fashion that it was sincere. And I felt like. And that's what this chapter tells me, that, that uh, recovering from alcoholism is a gift that, is, that I have. There's a lot of shame. This book, this chapter points out. Feeling of oh, the loss of self-worth. It also tells us that after we have gotten involved in the program and we can get out of ourselves by getting active and thinking about others is a great relief. But if you're an early alcoholic, I mean an alcoholic and trying to get early into recovery, you may be asking yourself the question, what do I have to do? I asked my sponsor early on what I had to do. He said, whatever it takes. <laughs> that didn't excite me too much. And this business of people understanding us, I've heard it time and time again from different families, friends, and all these people that are, we described, it describes as being hurt, statements that I'll share with you that comes right out of this chapter. I can take it or leave it. Why can't he? Why don't you drink like a gentleman or quit? That fellow can't handle his liquor. Why don't you try beer or wine instead of the hard stuff? 
That don't work either. I tried that. His willpower must be weak. I had thought I had demonstrated to myself all my life that if there's anything I really had going for me in my life was willpower. I, I didn't have the silver spoon, and I didn't have a lot of things, but if I wanted it, and I wanted it bad enough, I felt like I could get it. And I never saw anything I couldn't whip. Now, I may lose the first round, but I'll be back. And most of the time, I accomplished those things that I set out to do. So I felt like that I could quit. And I, I said that myself to a lot of people. It's okay, I'm doing all right. I'll quit when I get ready. Man, I'd been ready a long time, but I couldn't tell anybody that. Or could I tell them? You see, what it was, Will and I got drunk together a lot of times. And that began to lead, as this story tells, or this book, this chapter tells me, to some hopelessness. That lack of control. This chapter also goes on and tells me about the different types of drinking people. And that is those that drink on the social, quote, as we have heard. In other words, the one that'll take the cold beer on a Fourth of July hot Fourth of July picnic, a little wine with turkey dinner on Thanksgiving. Eggnog on Christmas morning, as I relate and think in terms of that, what I classify as a social drinker, then they, they call him moderate, I believe, in this area. I always felt like those people just didn't know how to drink, or they didn't drink more than that. They also don't mention here another group of people in this world that I had to take a good look at, and it was from some gentleman that I had worked with, uh, that he, he, was, he was helping me stay sober uh, because he was having a terrible time getting sober. But it was on his second birthday of his sobriety, and he came to me and he says, I got something I got to share with you. And I says, what is it? He says, I've been sober two years today. So that means I'm two years old and... What does two-year-olds, where do they live? He says they live with their parents, and that's what I'm doing. I, my father's dead, but I'm living with my mother. She's 72 years old, and that's where I live, because I'm it's okay, because I'm just two years old today. So he says, I got up this morning, and I went charging into the kitchen where my mother was fixing us breakfast, and I says, Mother, guess what? I'm two years sober today. And she said, she looked at me in the eye and says, what's so great about that? I'm 72 years old, sober today. <laughs> and the point I'm trying to make is that there are people that don't drink, as strange as it may seem. <laughs> now he goes on and he starts talking about, he didn't put it down yet, and he didn't spell my name out. He, he, well, he did spell it out, but he misspelled it a little bit. Anyway, the real alcoholic. And he goes on through, and he describes Doyle Smith just perfect. I mean, I didn't know that those people way back there, when I was only 
10, 12, 13 years old, somewhere in that neighborhood, knew about me like that to write a book about me for my future. But that's what they've done. They identified me. They talked about the things that drink did to me. They talk about the destruction, the yo-yo, up and down personality, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the people that, that I hurt, the antisocial behavior as a result of it, the changing of the personality, the destruction of all areas of life, my life, and others. They talk about, and not in exactly the way I'm saying it, but a need for survival through the drink. And to what extent that we will go through to be sure that that supply is out there. And they talk about how I used to get up in the morning early and start looking for that bottle that I hid somewhere because, I, you see, I, had, I was one of those that, that had a measure at my house. I had one bottle for measuring purposes and another hid out for my own survival purposes. Uh, and if I didn't drink a little bit out of that measuring bottle, she'd think she'd know about those other places. So it was a real tough job. Uh, and, and, and that type of thing. But they didn't mention this, though, in this chapter. And I don't guess they made motor homes in those days, but those hiding places. Have you ever stopped to think about how many hiding places is in a 25-foot motor home? It, it was the greatest thing that had happened to me in a long time. Kept it for about four or five years. My children used it on a few occasions when I could go out and get the oil changed. What I was doing was getting the empties out and fixed it for them. Kept it for about four years. We only put 9,000 miles on it, but it rendered a great service. See, that's described in how we hide this stuff in this, in this book here. And all the ups and the downs and the lies and not being able to understand what's happening. And I sure picked up on that a while ago when I heard that they didn't tell me that in medical school and they didn't teach me that. And it goes on and describes how desperate we can get. How hopeless. Now, I had long been hopeless. I, I, uh, I heard it said one time in an AA meeting that they thought you had to come from a religious background, a Christian home, or something of that nature before you, uh, to, before you could qualify to be an alcoholic. Well, I came from that area, and I guess that increased the shame and the guilt in my life. And I couldn't quit, and that describes it in here, the loss of control, total, and hopelessness. Now, that was what was getting devastating. 
It was sort of like if you would lend you, me your mind's eye for just a moment, as I can look back and try to describe some feelings that I had, the desperation and frustration, was if this is the last train going to where I got to be, and I'm running late, and the train's pulling out, and it's going slow, and I feel like I can catch it, but the faster I run, the faster the train gets, and there I keep running and struggling as it disappears and gets smaller and smaller and it's leaving me. Excuse me. <laughs> That's the feeling I had. I had fear of dying. Now, I don't know, they, not too many get to this, I guess. But that went away. And it was replaced by another fear. And with that became a little hope. And that fear was that I'm going to live. I'm going to live some more. I've got another one of these days to go through. You're talking about one day at a time. The living hell. And I couldn't find the solution. And I was one of these kind that I couldn't make it in AA. I tried. Now... I knew that, I knew that uh, as I would take my vodka before I got to the meeting and one right after, that if I sat on the back row, nobody would know I'd had it. And I went that route for a while and everybody knew. I now know. But they tolerated me. And as we move along and I look at this area, another area of this chapter, they get into what they call the solution. And there is a solution. Bottom line is identify your problem and spirituality is a solution. That is something that was... I never knew what spirituality was. I thought I knew what religiosity was, but I didn't know what spirituality was. And I had a lot of trouble with that. I saw the, the first step was, uh, and, and this is over in another one of the chapters, but this is really what spirituality is to me. And that was the, I, it was obvious that I was powerless over alcohol. That I had no problem with. But I'm unmanaged, unmanageability of my life. Here I am powerless and I'm unmanageable. Man, that don't leave me anything to hang on to. I mean, that's like a dog chasing his tail. I ain't getting anywhere. But I didn't read far enough. And I looked, and finally, after a long period of time, I found out that if that second step, and I would look at the third step and really get honest and get comfortable with that second step, but I didn't have to manage. I had a manager. And it went on and on and on. And as I went through all of these steps, and I tried to work them as best I could, and finally one day, I got down and was looking at that last step. You know, it's, this chapter also tells us that as we become alcoholics, we're the last one to, to figure it out. And it also tells us in this chapter that as we are in recovery and our spirituality develops, we're the last one to figure out that it's happened. Everybody else has seen this personality change all along. I don't know why we, we, we can't see in ourselves what other people can see. 
but that's what it was. And I looked at that twelfth step. I'll have to tell you this little story because this is where I was. It may be very inappropriate, but I have been known to do things like that before. The story is that there was a very elderly gentleman up in his 90s that had long lost his mate and the organic brain syndrome had set into his being and he was in a nursing home where people cared for him and there was a flickering of things in his life that he could remember back and then he'd lose it but then he'd remember other things and without him being without a mate for some time he found out from somewhere that two doors down the street was a brothel. And it didn't pay much attention, but he thought about it again. And so finally one morning he decided he'd go visit the brothel. And he got down there and he asked for the lady, the madam, and she came out and with a sort of a chuckle under her breath says, what can you do for you, Pops? He says, I'd like to, to use your services. So she went back in to discuss with some of the, the employees of the institution and came back and sort of laughed said, Well, Pops, we think you've already had it. He says, I have. How much I owe you? <laughs> now, as I would go over those steps and I would get down to where it says, Having had a spiritual awakening, and I can remember thinking I have with a question mark. When did it happen? See, I was, I had found my solution and didn't know it through you people. And now I read that and I say, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, and when I say having had a spiritual awakening, I don't, I, I still use the I have, but I use an exclamation point. It's positive. And that is what has made my life what it is today. There is a solution, and it gives us us. But another thing that this chapter tells me is that it is sort of an introduction of things to come, of which you're going to hear about later on today or tonight and tomorrow, I guess, in other chapters. And I had to get comfortable with this before I could get an attitude that was proper for me to get out of those other chapters what I was supposed to get. And it's real simple. But I had a terrible time with it, and there's a lot of people sitting around in this building today that cared enough and loved enough and tolerated enough for me to not only begin to identify my problem, but help me find my solution. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to our two speakers.